The nuns knew babies were dying and they did nothing about it. It's neglecting babies to death. Paul Redman was born in one of Ireland's mother and baby homes. Institutions run by nuns that are now infamous because of the thousands of babies that died in their care. The women were trash. They were society's throwaways. Why would you treat the children any better? Annette McKay's older sister was born in one of those homes for unmarried pregnant women. But she never met her sister, who died as a baby. I was deprived of a mother. And then they tried to deprive my children, my son, of a mother. And Catherine Coffey O'Brien was a mother, one of an estimated 30,000 who was forced into a mother and baby home. She's one of the rare ones who got away before she gave birth. Ireland's mother and baby home scandal destroyed families and cost up to 6,000 babies' lives. It continues to raise questions about the relationship between the Catholic Church and the Irish state. And that's just one part of this story. Today we're talking about a dark history of institutional abuse against women in Ireland, both rich and poor, married and unmarried, and the government's alleged attempts to sweep it all under the rug. I'm Alika Bilal, and this is The Take. Al Jazeera documented this network of systemic abuse against Irish women and children as part of its investigative show, People and Power. And we should say, some of the content we'll be talking about is upsetting. Much of the film focuses on the unmarked infant graves discovered in 2014 in the Irish town of Chum, as well as survivors' efforts to seek justice. My colleague Lawrence Lee is the one who pitched the story. I am a correspondent at Al Jazeera, and I've been covering issues to do with what I describe as institutional violence against women in Ireland, on and off in its different forms for about the last eight years. This story has so many moving parts, but I want to start in the same place as the People in Power documentary does. It is actually the first time that any film crew have been allowed inside. Looking at the door. God, it's huge. This is your first impression when you walk in. It's like a stately home. It is a beautiful house. But as you go down along, you'll see the secrets. Tell me about Chum and what was found there and how that story started to unravel. It almost came out of the blue, really. I think the outside world didn't know anything about what were described as mother and baby homes until this absolutely startling thing that happened in 2014. A local historian called Catherine Corliss discovered the remains of more or less 800 babies buried in some old sewage tanks underneath what used to be a mother and baby home in this completely insignificant town in the middle of Ireland. And I'd been covering issues to do with institutional violence against women in Ireland. So I became quite preoccupied by it because I just thought it was such an absolutely staggering thing. I mean, 800 dead children. You, You never heard anything like it. Can you tell me more about that specifically? Because 800 babies, how were these babies dying? 
Well, there was a whole variety of reasons when their causes of death were listed. At least one is a word called marasmus, which is another word for malnutrition. So they died because they didn't have enough food. In one other home, at least a few of them died of heat stroke, which you think is the most extraordinary thing in a country like Ireland where it rains all the time. Actually, I have heat stroke. And, and a lot of it was entirely preventable. But the, the death rates were several times, six or eight times higher than children in other parts of the country at the time. Um, but the worst thing of all was that in, in a country that was staunchly religious, and, and when, when anybody died, it had to be in consecrated ground and the priests give the last rites, they, they didn't get any of those things at all. One of the researchers in the documentary mentioned that as well. To allow this level of desecration, babies died. Do we really, really have such little regard for them that we are not even going to mark them in death? Lawrence, I think when people hear the term mother and baby home, it might evoke this warm, fuzzy feeling. You may not think that we're about to take you down this grisly path. How would you define what Ireland called mother and baby homes? As you say, it sounds like sort of warm and fuzzy. Uh, in fact, throughout the 20th century, they were seen as a sin and an offence, almost like a criminal offence, really, to become pregnant outside marriage, even if you were raped. And so if a woman became pregnant outside marriage for whatever reason, then the local priest, with the effective consent of the community, said to that woman, off you go, my girl, you have to go to the nuns. And these women had no choice but to go into what the church called mother and baby homes. Here's how Anna Corrigan, whose mother lived in the Chum Institution, described it. Their identity was taken away, their human rights was taken away, their hair was taken away, their clothes was taken away. Prisoners got better treatment. They were effectively penal institutions. And when the women gave birth in the homes, well, I mean, we have so many different descriptions from women who, who, have, who had to do this, that they weren't given any sorts of palliative care or, or injections or anything. They, they, they usually gave birth in the basement of the home where their screams couldn't be heard. And they, very many people have said to us, the nuns used to whisper in their ears things like, was it worth it for your two minutes of pleasure? And that sort of thing. It was a punishment. It was seen as a sin and a crime. Then when they gave birth, they had a few days with their baby and then the baby was taken away from them uh, and the babies were then looked after by the nuns. Uh, the, the, the mother had to spend a year in the home and were then released. But of course, if she then became pregnant again outside marriage, she then had to come back in again. And so you, you get a sense of this sort of conveyor belt there's one woman in the film who takes that idea of the conveyor belt, and she describes it really as a network of abuse. So her name is Catherine Coffey O'Brien. She says, All the industrial schools, all the orphanages, the Magdalens, and the modern baby homes, they were all interconnected. And once your family was through the system, it was almost like you had a target in your back. Can you walk us through briefly maybe list how those institutions she listed were linked? Well, I mean, for a start, the main point was they were all run by Catholic orders. I think it's important to see the, the mother and baby homes. Clearly, 
that the mother goes in is made to work for nothing. If the child grows up, then it's, it's sent to an industrial school, also run by the Catholic Church. Plenty of abuse, no chance of doing anything. Those people, those children, often grew up to have broken lives, and if they were women in particular, would often end up back in the mother and baby home themselves. And obviously the Magdalene laundries were also attached to those things as well. The Magdalene laundries were the places where if you went into a mother and baby home and gave birth, then you were sent to one of the laundries to do unpaid work. So it was an entire system that was in place. So it was simultaneously a way for the church to say, you need punishment for your sins and a way of making a lot of money out of people suffering at the same time. Lawrence also explained that the government was directly, financially involved in this. It paid the nuns a stipend for every mother and baby in these homes. In some cases, he found, the nuns would inflate those numbers to get more cash from the state. Leaders of the Catholic Church in Ireland and Pope Francis himself apologized in 2018 for the crimes committed at the mother and baby homes But survivors say Ireland has a long way to go to truly heal. From your reporting and from the people you've talked to, have there been conversations about what Irish society was like during the time period of this and how Irish society may or may not have been complicit in allowing this to happen? I think that's a really important point. And certainly when we published our films, we went to the religious orders for for the usual right of reply. Uh, And there, at least one of their points was that we're not responsible for what Irish society was like through this period. And it doesn't really exonerate them, in my view, but on some level, Irish society was, was complicit in all this as well because they took their orders from the church. People have said to me over the years that I've been doing this in very quiet voices, everybody knew about it. I've I've spoken to people who were born in Chewham, where there were, say, 800 kids at a time and screaming everywhere. I said to this guy who's in his 80s now, do you think people in Chewham might have not heard you? He said, oh, everyone knew. Mm. The whole town knew. And I think that's really difficult for Ireland as a country to accept that if not your parents, your grandparents might have had something to do with this as well. So we've been talking about this cradle-to-grave system of abuse I want to turn now to the women that you talked to who told you about these grotesque operations that some people were forced to undergo. A note here to listeners, the stories you are about to hear are graphic. I never seen so much blood. It was like a fountain. I knew I was going to die. What can you tell me about that? Quite outside this system of violence against women inside these institutions was the greater issue of what was happening to women who might have been married and wanted to give birth in a state hospital. After the advent of the caesarean section, if you're pregnant and your baby is the wrong way around, then you have a C-section and that resolves the problem. In the 20th century, Ireland was more or less the only developed country that refused to do C-sections and instead insisted on a practice called symphysiotomy. Your symphys is your pelvis, it holds your frame together. Otomy, like lobotomy, is, is, is cutting apart. So symphysiotomy means cutting of the pelvis. And what 
very many women who had this done described was that they went into hospital and the baby was the wrong way around and the bottom of their pelvis is sawed open with a hacksaw. Oh my gosh. It sounds unbelievable, but I promise you it's true. And these women were left doubly incontinent and able to have a physical relationship with their husband in, I mean, unbelievable amounts of pain. Why would you do this? In a state hospital, of all places, the argument seems to be that the church regarded the ideal family size as being somewhere between eight and ten children. And if you had a caesarean section, then that limits you to two or three. So Lawrence is saying the hospitals were performing symphysiotomies because they were supposed to make it easier for women to give birth over and over. But oftentimes, the women were left in so much long-term pain that it was difficult for them to even get pregnant again. One woman I spoke to, a woman called Nora Clark, who lives in the northwest of England now, gave this a description. It, it, it was like a horror film. He turned round, he got the saw, and then he started sawing me and telling them to, to hold me down. I pushed the baby out, and then whatever way he was sawing me, once I pushed out all the blood, shot up to the ceiling and all over him. She said there were fountains of blood coming up, and they brought in all the trainee doctors to watch. It was like being in some sort of mad experiment. It ruined my life, yeah. It ruined me mentally and physically. Another woman said that she was conscious and she could hear the saw. She said it was like someone sawing a stick mm. when they were cutting her bone. Um, her baby came out head first and then impaled its head on her pelvic bone and bled to death. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, it, it's really very serious. And, uh, I mean, certainly the United Nations and human rights organisations inside Ireland have absolutely categorised symphysiotomy as a form of torture against women. It's, it's another expression of institutional violence against women under the orthodox doctrine of the Catholic Church. It's estimated that doctors perform symphysiotomies on around 1,500 Irish women between the 1940s and 1980s. And the horrific nature of this operation, plus everything we talked about earlier with the mother and baby homes, the industrial schools, and the Magdalene laundries had us wondering how this system of abuse evolved and why the Irish government let it continue. If you go back to the birth of the Irish state, when they eventually got rid of British influence, it's really important to understand that the Irish people quite reasonably feel still now really aggrieved at the things that Britain did to them. You know, forced famines, land grabs, centuries of oppression, the dividing in two of the entire country. For, for centuries, Britain was a completely malign influence on, on Ireland. And when they eventually got the British out, then it became an opportunity for them to say, we want to do things our own way now. And because clearly it's a Catholic country and the UK is basically Protestant, they obviously wanted to form a complete distinctive way of looking at everything. And the, so they basically allowed the church to take over everything to do with sort of moral codes. And it continued right through the 20th century, really. And the church wouldn't have been able to do this if it weren't for the state backing them all the way. Personally, did you ever run into skepticism as you covered this because you're not Irish 
you're not Catholic, right? Yeah, no, no. And you're British. Yeah. So was it hard to get people to talk to you about this and to want to open up about this? Well, the people that won't talk to you are the state. Okay. The survivors and the relatives are absolutely desperate for someone to talk to because the media in Ireland is a bit iffy about it. And the international media doesn't really want to do it. And so really, they haven't got many friends. And so they they were delighted to talk to us about it. It is also true that, you know, the, the one thing Irish people hate more than anything else is the British lecturing them about things. And I can yes. really understand that. <laughs> but again, I'm not the one saying that this was disgraceful and that Ireland replaced one form of oppressors, the British, with another form of oppressors, the Catholic Church. I might report that, but it's not, it doesn't have to be my opinion. It's these people themselves who are saying that, and they're all Irish. So let's talk about the state and successive government's responses. As you say, these operations happened in the name of the church. The church itself ran these institutions, but the government blessing was there and the government money was there. How have governments dealt with that legacy and with that past? They've tried as hard as they can completely to bury it, to, to be blunt about it. There was an inquiry and a scheme launched for, for the survivors of the Magdalene Laundries, and that happened in 2012. When the inquiry came out, the state basically said, sorry about that, here's a bit of compensation. Again, with the symphysiotomies in the state hospitals, when this came out, and the state launched a compensation scheme, but it went according to the same template, which is if you had proved that you had had a symphysiotomy, you had to sign a form saying that you wouldn't take any legal action of any kind against any doctor, any hospital, any nun, any religious order, anybody from the government or the Irish state. There was a list of about 35 different groups of people. And in return, they gave you usually about 50,000 euros, which is like $60,000 or something, minimal compensation, accompanied by a really, really patronising letter saying, sorry about that, hope you can spoil yourself with this money. Lawrence interviewed medical malpractice experts in London and found that for a similar example in the US or UK, the patient would get millions back, not just 60,000. You know, because these women were often left unable to do anything. It absolutely ruined their lives. But once that scheme was finished, they closed it off. Thanks, that's it. There's a big concern that the inquiry into the mother and baby homes could go the same way. The commission in charge of that was supposed to issue their report in 2018. They delayed to this year. And now... Now it's been delayed until the end of October. Are they going to report then? Nobody knows. And if they do report, what actually are they going to say? There were 15 mother and baby homes or so across Ireland. They dug up Churm a bit. They dug up a bit of a different home called Bespera, but they won't say what they found there. They just don't want to believe that it happened on the scale it happened because it is so shameful. But the Irish state needs to accept this. This isn't going away. There is a very strong suspicion among all the survivors and their groups that really what the state wants to do is to try to kick it down the road as far as they can, at least until the surviving nuns have died, because they would be fair game for massive amounts of compensation or litigation cases or even criminal inquiries. The survivors think 
these places should be treated as crime scenes. Because if children in the care of nuns are starving to death, then by today's standards, that's a criminal offence. But the Irish police are not involved at all. What do survivors want? What does justice look like for them? Justice for them looks like whole sites being dug up, the nuns telling the truth about how many babies died at each individual place, death records being revealed, DNA tests being done, so the bodies can be matched to their surviving parents. Apologies from the church and the state. I think they're less interested in money, and certainly the symphysiotomy survivors, who were smeared, by the way, and accused of being after money. Nobody has said to me that they're after money. They're after a sense of reckoning, really. The last mother and baby home shut down in 1998. A doctor performed the last recorded symphysiotomy in Ireland in 2005. And we've seen some big shifts in Irish society since then. In 2015, voters legalized same-sex marriage. In the end, it was a landslide. Irish voters said a resounding yes to gay marriage by a margin of two to one. Two years ago, they overturned the country's abortion ban. A landslide for Ireland's yes campaign. A seismic shift for Irish society. Lauren says these shifts are the work of a younger generation and an active social justice movement. But he says that doesn't mean people have forgotten the institutional abuse that women endured for decades. The church, and I think to some extent the state, would would quite like it to be regarded as something that is, is just completely past history. The trouble that they've got is that so many of the people that were affected by this, or their children, are here. They're all alive and they're not going anywhere. There are certainly lots of people like human rights activists and certainly the survivors of all this who say that it would be very useful if there was something like Truth and Reconciliation Commission or some overarching state inquiry that actually tried to understand the social conditions that led to all this happening. Something that said that the state accepts that its relationship with the church was so toxic throughout the 20th century that it needs to apologise And so it's this demand for natural justice that isn't going to go away anywhere. If the state thinks, if we just push this down the road far enough, then they'll all go away or die or something. It it isn't really going to happen. And that's The Take. Lawrence's reporting on this subject is much more extensive than we were able to cover here. You can learn more about this story in the documentary People and Power, Ireland's Mother and Baby Scandal. We'll link to it from our Twitter page at AJ the Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve, with me, Malika Bilal, Dina Kispe, Abigail Oniwohacha, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and Amy Walters. Alex Roldan is our team sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer, and Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Dermot Jeffries, Ekim Rahmani, and Colin McRae. We'll be back.